0: Uh, turn to your, in your Bibles to Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday, when it is past. Or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are wrought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of your hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of your hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to open your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would take it and apply it to our lives that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask in light of the message of finishing well and gaining a heart of wisdom, that we would consider wisely what we give our life to. That is, loving you, Father, with all of our heart, soul, and mind, as well as loving our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we ask that you would help us Appropriate the mind of Christ, whose only goal was to do your will, O oh God. May you become more and more the desire of our heart, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, two years ago at Christmas, I was in the hospital with cancer, and then last year at this time, I was in the hospital with staph and strep in my leg, and this year I was asked to share a message. I prefer this year. <laughs> but as I, as I think of the last two years, I'm reminded of the truth of 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This verse reminds me that the body I'm living in is getting older. But the important thing is, is my inner life, the life I live in Christ, is that revealing more and more of the glory of the divine life that God intended for those of us who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So looking back on the last two years and looking forward to next, it it seemed appropriate to look at finishing well and gaining a heart of wisdom. Now, when you do a message like this, you're very grateful for those who finished well and left us their wisdom they gleaned from God's Word, that we might draw on it, and some of us need it more than others. You also realize how you have failed at times and the pitfalls that you have Allow it to draw your affections away from Christ. I also need to let you know that today there is much scripture that we will go through. And it might be helpful for you to just listen to the passage as I read them and put the reference under the point in the outline it goes with. Now, the reason I read Psalm 90 to begin with earlier is that it relates to today's message on finishing well and gaining a heart of wisdom. In July of 1971 when I was in the military I responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as he drew me to God through the work Christ accomplished on the cross. My redemption, my reconciliation, my adoption and my assurance of eternal life were all bought about because of the blood that Christ shed for my sin. And the sin of all who are called. And if we are called of God, our salvation is complete and certain. And the reason I read Psalm 90 and the reason it's precious to me and how God used it in my life all starts back when I came to Christ out of a Catholic background. And I even went to seminary to become a priest. Fortunately for Josh, I decided I wasn't meant to be single. Now, being a Catholic, we grew up with pictures of Christ and of the saints and of Mary. And my dad gave me this picture of Christ that he liked. And after I became a Christian, I met a guy in my squadron by the name of Johnny Brock who liked to draw. And I I showed him the picture I had that was about two inches by three inches. And I asked if he would be willing to draw me a larger picture Understand that I had been a Christian only a few weeks and was not aware of God's command found in Exodus 24 and 5a, which says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Well, the night before Johnny gave me this drawing, I was at the NCO club, non-commissioned officers club, and I went for the purpose of wanting to share with others my newfound faith in Christ. I sat down with about uh, five or six guys, and as we were talking, I asked them what they thought the greatest problem was in the world. And after listening for a half hour or so, they asked me what I thought I told him I thought the greatest problem was that we as a nation had turned our back on God. And I began sharing the little I had learned and knew about Christ. And there was a young black man by the name of George who was from Atlanta. And he told me that he had never heard anyone talk about Christ the way I did. But he had to leave to meet somebody else, but wanted to know if we could get together. He wanted to hear more. Well, the next morning, um, we were getting ready for inspection before we flew out to our missile sites. And Johnny Brock gave me this picture. And little did he know the profound effect that it would have on me. And so before rushing out of my room, I grabbed the picture Johnny had given me and stuck it under a conduit pipe to hold it on the wall. Then I ran to the flight area to, to board the chopper. Now, there were six missile sites, And there were six choppers with six missile security police and one pilot per chopper. And we were in the air for about 20 minutes when one of the pilots on another chopper called the tower and said he was experiencing some bad vibrations in the chopper and was going to land. He gave his location, and the next thing I heard on the headset was a loud crackling sound. One of the other chopper pilots uh, started heading toward the location given by the pilot And it wasn't long before we heard, Oh no, the chopper had crashed and all were killed except the pilot. My thoughts went to who was on the chopper from my crew. My two sweet mates, the guys who roomed next to me. Doug, who the night before had borrowed a bridge illustration, which is a gospel track. His sweet mate, who I had given Steps of Peace with God by Billy Graham. George, the young black man I mentioned earlier, and Johnny Brock, who had drawn the picture of Christ. Shortly after the crash, they had the remaining choppers return to base, and they told us to go back to our barracks. And as I walked down the hallway, I saw something sticking out from under my door. And as I got to the door, I saw that it was the picture, or at least part of it, it was the part of the picture that I really hadn't taken notice of when I first looked at it, but I couldn't miss it now. For it was the only part of the picture that showed in the hallway, and it was a verse that Johnny found on the card. It was Psalm 90.12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, a little background on Psalm 90. 90. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, and some believe it was written shortly after God pronounced his judgment on Israel because of their unbelief, which is mentioned in Numbers 14:20 through 38 It says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give them to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunai, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land forty days. A year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity. Forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do. All this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spout the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. And of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephani, remained alive. We can see why Moses would pray this psalm and record it. All those who were going into the promised land who were under 20 needed to remember that God was their dwelling place for all generations. They needed to be reminded of the short span of life compared to God as an everlasting God. They needed to be reminded of God's wrath against those who despised his word and who rebelled in unbelief. So Moses reminds them and tells them, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is estimated that at least 15,000 died on an average every year in the wilderness. And one would think such a mortality rate would cause the whole nation to become more faithful to God's word. But it did not. John Calvin said of this verse, he said, Even he who is the most skillful in arithmetic and who can precisely and accurately understand and investigate millions of millions is nevertheless unable to count fourscore years in his own life. It is surely a monstrous thing that men can measure all distances, that they know how many feet the moon is distant from the center of the earth, and what space there is between the different planets. And in short, that they can measure all the dimensions, both of heaven and earth, and yet cannot number three score in ten years in their own case. It is therefore evident that Moses had good reason to beseech God for ability to perform what requires a wisdom which is very rare among mankind. For you and I to love a holy God is beyond our moral ability. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 So it is clear that without divine grace, we are utterly foolish concerning the plainest things. Before we get into the four vital elements for finishing well and gaining a heart of wisdom, I would like us to look at one other passage of Scripture found in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 and look at two lives, one who finished well and one who failed to finish. Let me read this passage just as Paul's Closing comments to Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Amatia. We see in this passage what it looks like to finish well. Versus one who failed to finish. Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Such a sobering and sad commentary for someone who started out well, whom Paul called a fellow worker in Philemon 23 and 24 when he closes the greetings. He says, Epaphras and my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus send you greetings to you. And so do Mark, Articus." and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. You and I can't love the gospel and the world at the same time as, as Christ makes clear no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will dis- be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So, so God has used Psalm ninety twelve and a message I heard shortly after the chopper crash on the life of Demas. A message not to presume on the grace of God. Demas was apparently a promising young convert with a promising future. Yet the description we're left with is, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Since 1971, I can't tell you how many have I heard profess Christ only to desert him just because of various reasons. They didn't like what he allowed in their life. They didn't uh, intend to have such struggles. And some love the world. I am sure when Demas initially joined Paul's team, he didn't intend to desert Paul when things got tough. Like many of us, he thought he would finish well and stand firm to the end. Demas and many other professing Christians don't just wake up one day and decide not to follow Christ. There is usually a process, and I think we can trace it to the charge that Christ brought against the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2-4, Where he said, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So, are there things that we can do that will help us finish well and gain a heart of wisdom and return to Christ as our first love? I have listed four of them in this outline, which is found in your bulletin. They are appropriating the gospel on a daily basis. Second, attending to our daily fellowship with God. Third, always dying to self that we may live for Christ. And fourth, adamantly believing in the sovereignty and love of God. So the first point in our outline is appropriating the gospel on a daily basis. And when I am using the word appropriating the gospel, I'm talking about setting apart in our lives, to take it personally. The gospel is only for sinners. And we come to Christ as he tells us. In Luke 5.32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Even our best deeds are sinful in God's sight, but we are still objects of his mercy and grace. And the gospel makes it clear that because of Christ, we now have access to the Father. In Ephesians 2.18, it says, For through Him, through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. You and I cannot come directly to God. We must always come through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God invites us to come to him, as Hebrews 10, 19, and 22 makes very clear. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so we appropriate the gospel. It gives us confidence to come into the very presence of God, to have fellowship with him. So we need to learn to live by the gospel every day of our lives. You look at Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Many of us have this memorized. It says, I have been crucified with Christ Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The reason we have to be clear on the gospel is that if we don't understand that we are justified and made righteous, by Christ's work on the cross, and only by that. And if we do not do that on a daily basis, we will drift toward performance relationship with God. And when we drift, we have a tendency to go in one of two directions. One way is to have a superficial view of sin, that our sin is not as serious as others' sin, And this attitude will lead to a spiritual pride. The second response, may to be overwhelmed by the sin we see in our own lives. Often people in this second category can't handle the difference between what they know they should be and what they honestly see themselves to be. The only thing that can deal with our spiritual pride and our being overwhelmed by our sins, is the gospel. The gospel resolves that dilemma. It reminds us that our sins are forgiven and that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time Christ made us his own, we were justified. That's past tense. And if we try to justify ourselves in any way, we are in effect attempting to nullify the work of Christ on the cross. In truth, what we are telling God is what Christ did on the cross was insufficient to cover my sin. We have to see justification as a past event, but as a present reality. Many of us believe we were justified when we came to Christ, but we still want to pay our own way. We want to earn God's blessing. B.B. Warfield wrote these words, There is nothing in us or done by us, At any stage of our earthly development, because of which we are acceptable to God, we must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. What Warfield is saying is that no matter how sanctified we become, no matter how much we grow in the Christian life, it is always and only on Christ's blood and righteousness alone that we can stand and rest. Spurgeon had this to say about the righteousness of the saints. He said, saints are so righteous in Jesus Christ that they are more righteous than Adam was before he fell. For he had but creature righteousness and they have the righteousness of their creator. He had the righteousness which he lost. But believers have a righteousness which they can never lose, an everlasting righteousness. All of us in our sinful nature are prone to slide to a works-based relationship with God. And that's why we need to appropriate the gospel every day of our lives. God accepts us only for Christ's sake. God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he wants us to see ourselves clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that we will come to him on that basis and seek to relate to him through the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and not through our own works, as many try to do in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, where Christ says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we want to be faithful, and and we want to work hard, not in order to earn God's approval, but because we have God's approval. So a daily appropriation of the gospel is essential to finishing and enduring to the end. The second point of our outline is attending to our daily fellowship with God. The foundation of that must be a time of focused, personal communion with God, and it needs to be daily. As we said earlier, Demas didn't just wake up one day and make a 180-degree turn. It happens when, little by little, we drift toward the attractions of the world. If we fail to have this daily focused time with God, we will find ourselves also drifting in the wrong direction. Scripture says that Demas was in love with this present world, and each each of us, whether believer or unbeliever, is in love with something. Demas was in love with the world. And the Apostle John in 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John MacArthur commenting on this verse says, Either a person is a genuine Christian marked by love and obedience to God, or he is a non-Christian in rebellion against God. You and I, we, we cannot just not love the world and have a vacuum in our hearts. In order to not love the world, we have to love God. And our time of daily focused fellowship with God is a time when that love of God and his love for us is refreshed in our hearts. I listen to the psalmist in Psalms 63.1. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You notice the intensity of those words? Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. This is more than just spending 15 minutes reading a couple of chapters in the Bible, which is good. No, this is much more. It's an intense desire to have a deep and abiding fellowship with God. It's asking God to speak and to reveal himself to us through his word. It's praying his word as we interact with his word and what he reveals to us as the Holy Spirit leads us in truth. Psalm 27.4, the psalmist says, one thing have I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The desire of the psalmist is to reflect on God's attributes, his character. All he really desires is deep and abiding fellowship with his God. Listen to what George Mueller said about the importance of the word in his life. He said, It has pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, the benefit of which I have not lost more than 14 years. The point is this. I say more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished as I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God. Not prayer, but the Word of God. And here again, not a simple reading of the Word of God so that it only passed through my mind just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what I read, pondering over it, applying it to my heart, to meditate on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus by the means of the Word of God, while meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. Doesn't what Mueller just described and described Psalm 63, 1 and 27, 4. So as we approach the word of God, we ask that God would speak to us through his word, that he would encourage us and teach us and rebuke us in areas of our life we need to repent of. And as we read and meditate on the Word, we respond to God over what we are reading. We allow His Word to inform our prayer to Him, making sure that our prayer is more attuned to His will. Daily, we want to have that personal fellowship with God. He will show us what course corrections we need to make in our lives so that we don't drift off course. So if we're going to endure to the end, we must Make it a practice to have that daily, focused fellowship with God. Uh, Just a warning here, it's easy to become legalistic about this time. Remember, we do not earn blessings from God because we have this time, nor do we forfeit blessings from him if we miss a day. God does not bless us because we spend time with him but he often blesses us through that time. If you and I think it's hard to get time with God, think of Daniel, who made prayer and meditation of the scriptures, the chief business of his life. Yet, if we consider the circumstances in which he was placed, we shall see that few ever had greater obstacles than he in the way of seeking God. The third point, always dying to self, that we may live for Christ. Robert Chapman, uh, known as the Apostle of Love, said, there are many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. My great aim will be to live Christ. For that to happen, we need to surrender our lives as Paul makes very clear in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we daily reflect on the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ, this should lead us to present ourselves as a daily living sacrifice. And I think when Paul used the word sacrifice here, he was drawing on the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I believe he was probably referring to the burnt offering is what he had in mind. And there were two things unique about the burnt offering. First, it was the only offering that was completely consumed on the altar. With other offerings, only certain portions were burnt. With remaining portions reserved for the priest or even the one giving the offering. But the sacrifice of the burnt offering was entirely consumed on the altar, it signified not only atonement for sin, but also consecration or dedication of the offender to God. And the other interesting thing about the burnt offering is that it was done twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, so that the fire on the altar would not go out. So as we look at the burnt offering, we see there are two descriptive terms, a whole burn offering and a continual burn offering. And hopefully, we can see the application this has for us. First of all, the burn offering would signify that we are to consecrate our entire being, not only ourselves, but all that we have, everything we have, We are to dedicate to God as a sacrifice. And the word continually says to us that this must be repeated constantly. Just as we have a tendency to revert to a works-based relationship with God, we also have a tendency to take back that which we committed to him as well. And before we leave this point, I would like us to look at 1 Corinthians 6:19 through 20 where it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul wants us to affirm in our hearts and in our emotions what is true in reality. But he approaches it by way of an appeal. He does not say, this is your duty to do. He does not say, you're not your own. You don't have a choice in this matter. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. And this should draw us back to the gospel. Our service and sacrifices out of a love for him because of the great love he bestowed on us to redeem us. George Whitfield prayed, Oh, this self-love, this self-will. Lord Jesus, may thy blessed spirit purge it out of all our hearts. So the next time someone offends you or hurts you, you might want to fall back on what Robert Chapman said. If I have been injured by another, let me think to myself, How much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer? Look, without knowing God's word and what it says and reveals about Christ and his attributes, it is impossible to live as Christ. Dying to self and living for Christ takes more than worthy intentions. It means relying on the word of God and the Holy Spirit to empower us to live out the commands. You know, Christ tells us in Luke 9, 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That word, if, in the verse is one of the most challenging words we have to deal with if we would live as Christ. The fourth point in our outline is adamantly believing in the sovereignty and love of God. Look with me at Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Powerful verse. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? If we want to endure to the end and gain a heart of wisdom, it is vital that we believe in the sovereignty and love of God. We must believe that God is in control of every event in the universe and in our lives. But God, in exercising that control, does so out of an infinite love for us. As we look at this passage in Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, Let's specifically just dwell a little bit on verse 37. It says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? This verse affirms God's sovereignty over the actions of other people. So much of life's pain is caused by the sinful actions of other people. And if you fail to see and believe God is sovereign and in control of those actions, you will be tempted to become bitter. It is said that bitterness will cause more Christians to stumble than any other sin. And one of the ways we can keep from becoming bitter is to realize that God is in sovereign control, even over the sinful actions of other people. Verse 38 goes on to say, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good, and bad come that is God is in is in sovereign control over the difficulties and the pain, just as much as he's in control over what we would consider to be good things, and we should be grateful and thankful for the good things that God has given us, but what about the hard or hurtful things? Things that we would not choose to have in our lives. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This says that it's the moral will of God that we give thanks in all circumstances. Even as 1 Thessalonians 4 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is obvious that verse is speaking about the moral will of God, and Paul uses the same phraseology in 5.18 when he says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So how do we give thanks in a hard time? We do it by faith. We do it by trusting God's promises. We do it by faith in the words of God as we recall what he tells us in Romans 8:28 and 29 when he says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers Good is defined in verse 29 as being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is what brings glory to God. Our being conformed to the likeness of Christ. So he brings or allows these various circumstances that we would not choose for ourselves. He brings them into our lives because he wants to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So by faith we can say, Lord, I do not know what your purpose you have in this difficulty or this pain or this trial, but you said that you will use it to conform me more and more to Jesus Christ. And for that I give thanks. So we give thanks by faith. Look at Acts as an example of this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The best testimony that Stephen bore was his last not when preaching and working miracles, but when he pleaded for his persecutors. For then he most resembled the Lord Jesus Christ in patience, forgiveness, and love. Another promise for us to hang on to is found in Hebrews thirteen five, where it says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When God uses the word never, it is an absolute word. There is no ambiguity here. It doesn't mean sometimes or most of the time. It means never. We can count on it because God cannot lie. He may allow us to go through some difficulty or pain, but he will not forsake us. Look how clear he makes us in Romans 8:38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's possible that we may face hard times or go through difficult situations. But there are two things God will never take away. He will never take away the gospel. We will always stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our sins are forgiven if we repented of our self-righteousness. And second, God will never take away his promises. As Second Peter says, 1, 3-4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellency by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So, because of the work Christ accomplished on the cross, taking our sin and God's wrath and giving us His righteousness and God's Word, we can become more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And there is no reason we should not finish well or gain a heart of wisdom if we appropriate the gospel on a daily basis and if we give attention to our daily fellowship with God. Pray that we would die to self and live for Christ in heaven, adamant believe in the sovereignty and love of God. So some final thoughts. When we think of finishing well and in when ending well, it means standing firm. But we not only want to endure, we want to persevere. As Paul says in Second Timothy 4, 7, I have finished the race. Perseverance means that we keep going despite obstacles. We must move forward. We must fight the good fight. We must finish the race, and we must keep the faith. So in conclusion, here are four quick summary points to avoid drifting off course and to keep our gaze on Christ. First, we must realize that our greatest need in life is to know God not our physical or temporal needs. Paul said in Philippians 3, 8-11, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ begins by believing in the saving work of Christ at Calvary. Second, to gaze on the Lord means to Seek God's face before we seek his hand. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That means asking God to give us an eternal perspective on our temporal needs. One of the Puritans prayed that God would stamp eternity on his eyeballs. And in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things on the earth. It is so easy for us to lose focus. So we need to pray, Lord, help us keep our eyes focused on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Third, we need to understand that in God's sovereignty, everything touching our lives is designed or allowed by Him in order to conform us to His image. Again, we look at Romans 8 through 30, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in the order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is being conformed to the image of Christ what we are pursuing? Or are we satisfied with so much less than Christ being formed in us? Finally, we must trust God enough to work in us in any circumstances so that his attributes are made visible through us. In Philippians three seventeen through 21, Paul writes, Brothers, join me in imitating, in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. God wants his attributes to be seen in us rather than our own so that he is the one who receives the glory. I hope you can see from what I've shared this morning that God has given us everything we need to finish well and gain a heart of wisdom. It's all his grace which allows us to obey his commands and return our first love. Maybe as we went through some of these points, uh, you have sensed or are aware that maybe you take what Christ accomplished on the cross lightly because you take sin lightly. Or that having deep and abiding fellowship with him is not your first love. Or that you see in your life that there are things that you perhaps don't want to surrender to him. Or maybe it's fear and lack of belief in God's sovereignty. Well, then join me in a time of reflecting and repenting as God reveals to us areas of our life that we have not surrendered to Him. Let me read this quotation to you from Charles Spurgeon in closing. He says, We have not enough time at our disposal to justify us misspending a single quarter of an hour. Neither are we sure enough of life to justify us in procrastinating for a moment. If we were wise at heart, we should see this. But mere head wisdom will not guide us aright. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel that opened the way for us to even approach you in prayer. And we praise you for your word and the promises that are guaranteed to us because of your character, that you cannot lie. We are thankful that you are in sovereign control over everything and that your love is an everlasting love. And because of that, we can trust you to be always working for our good. And as we heard and learned today, Our good is being conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, we ask that the work that you began in us, you would carry out to completion for your glory. And we ask that by your grace at work in us, we would finish well and gain a heart of wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name.